Well, as Susan said, we are at our annual hot topic. And thank you for coming out again another week to see what we're going to talk about. Uh, if you've never been to the hot topic before, the purpose of our hot topics is. Uh, really to equip you. Um, we know that uh, our summers get really busy with lots of activities, things in our community. We have beach parties and pool parties and picnics and barbecues and we spend time with family and friends and our community and with that there's lots of great conversations that take place. And so we try to think about maybe something that's culturally relevant, that might be current, something that we need to address as Christians, as biblical thinking Christian women. And we think about that topic. We think about then what the Bible says about that topic. We compare and contrast the two, and we again equip you for those conversations. So this year, uh, the title of our session is going to be Girl, It's Not About You. And the subtitle is When Self-Help Puts Our Focus Back on Us. And the reason for that title is we're going to look at primarily two books. Uh, these are best-selling books. The first one is called Girl, Wash Your Face. And the second one is Girl, Stop Apologizing. Uh, these are, again, best-selling books. Girl, Wash Your Face has been on the New York Times bestseller list for 56 weeks now. So that's over a year. This is a bestseller. And then the companion, the newer one, Girl, Stop Apologizing, has been on the New York Times bestseller list for nine weeks in a row. So these are everywhere. You'll see them in Costco. You'll see them in Target. You'll see them. If you haven't seen them before, you will see them now. A lot of people are reading these books. So your first point is just realize that someone you know is reading these books. Again, they have been on the bestseller list, the first one for over a year. They're in all of our local stores. People are buying them, giving to them to each other as gifts. Someone you know is reading these books. Now, the author, Rachel, Rachel Hollis, um, she, uh, her father and her grandfather were both Pentecostal preachers. So she's a pastor's kid. Uh, her mom was a S-A-H-M. That's an acronym that she often uses in her writing for stay-at-home mom. And Rachel grew up in a city called Weed Patch, California. Uh, it's a small town. It is southeast of Bakersfield. And the G-O-W there is a reference to the fact that this city, Weed Patch, is mentioned in John Steinbeck's great book, The Grapes of Wrath, uh, because it's a place where there's a lot of migrant workers. And uh, the town is tiny. There are only 2,300 194 residents, and it's in Kern County, and it is one of the poorest of all the towns in Kern County. The median household income is only $28,451 a year, and that's for the whole household. So a very small, very uh, poor town is what Rachel came from. She says in her own words, I didn't have an easy start. Actually, if I'm being honest, the word I would use to describe much of my childhood is traumatic. Our house was chaotic, the highest highs and the lowest lows. There were big parties filled with family and friends, followed by screaming and fighting and crying. Fist-sized holes would find their way into the walls and plates would shatter against the kitchen floor. My father handled stress with anger, my mother handled it by going to bed for weeks at a time. So Rachel really overcame a lot of obstacles. Her parents ended up divorcing, and her older brother, Ryan, actually took his own life when she was 14. So because she uh, courageously overcame these obstacles, she communicates that message to her audience. She moved from Weed Patch to Los Angeles, and her favorite celebrity, her favorite movie was uh, Matt Damon in Good Will Hunting. So she recognized that that movie was put out by Miramax Films, and so she got a job at Miramax Films, hoping one day to meet her idol, Matt Damon. 
Well, she did well at Miramax, and uh, soon she became an event planner. Uh, she became a wedding planner, and then she started uh, Chick Events, which handled all sorts of big events. She then developed that into Chick Media, which is now known as the Hollis Company, and it's a very prolific, well-read lifestyle blog. She's written three fiction books, two cookbooks, uh, two self-help books. Those are the two that we're gonna look at. She's a motivational speaker. Uh, she's founded and leads the RISE conferences, and she currently has 1.3 million Instagram followers. So just on Instagram alone, 1.3 million people, primarily women, are following Rachel. Now, the reason we really need to look at this is because this is the list of the number one best-selling Christian books. In April of 2019, the number one best-selling Christian book was Girl, Wash Your Face. In fact, last year, in all of 2018, the number one best-selling Christian book Christian book was Girl, Wash Your Face. These are books that Christian women are buying and reading because they've been published by Thomas Nelson Publishers. And Thomas Nelson is a Christian book publishers. So these are Christian books. Thomas Nelson publishes uh, Max Lucado, Francis Chan, other uh, well-read Christian publishers. So these are Christian books. Again, the number one book read by Christians in all of 2018, last month, and I'm sure this month as well. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the message of these Christian books? And how does this message compare to the scripture? That's what God calls us to do as his children, as good Bereans, as Acts 17 would teach us. We take the message of what we're reading and we compare it to the message of scripture. So uh, the first book, again, that we're going to look at, that we're going to filter through in a sense, is the 20 lies that we believe, 20 different lies that we believe, and Rachel's responses to those lies. So there's 20 lies in this book, Girl, Wash Your Face. Some of the lies, for example, are, I am not good enough, and she responds to that, I'm not bad at sex, or I am bad at sex, and she responds to that, and I need a hero, she responds to that. And then, again, the sequel book, uh, Girl, Stop Apologizing, is a shame-free plan uh, for embracing the best you, uh, nine excuses that you need to let go of, seven behaviors you need to adopt, and six skills that you need to acquire. So we're going to look again at these books, and we're going to ask the five W's and one H, right? The who, what, where, when, how when, why, how, and we're going to see as we look through those what she says in the books, and we're going to start by saying, looking at what she says about the books. She has on her YouTube channel, uh, which has a lot of subscribers, a video that she posts called The Video Every Woman Should Watch. And remember, this is a Christian book by a Christian publisher, and she's saying that every woman, so that would include us, we should all watch this. So let's just see what she has to say real quick in the video that she posts as the video every woman should watch. You tell me you don't have the time? I'm gonna call bullcrap. I'm gonna call bullcrap on you all year long. That's what 2017 is about, because here's the thing, you guys. It is not about choosing what you want right now. It is about choosing what you want most. Other people don't get to tell you what you can have. Someone else doesn't get to tell you who you can be. That's on you. Go all in. Take massive action immediately, not on Monday, not at the new year, not next month. Right now, today, take massive action to get you to your goal. Anything you want for yourself, you have to do yourself. And the first step to getting there is that we're not gonna have a dream, we're gonna have a plan. Listen to me, nobody is ever going to care about your dreams as much as you do, no matter what they are, nobody. 
I believe deeply that you are capable of anything you set your mind to, but you got to set your mind to it and go all in. So you need to start with your goal and reverse engineer from there and not give up when it gets hard or when it's taking too long because that is part of life. There are days that are going to be hard, but don't encourage the hard stuff. Don't encourage the suckiness by surrounding yourself with affirmations of giving up. You are stronger than you have become. You can do more than you think you can do. You are capable of whatever you set your mind to. Plan your life accordingly. Sometimes you just have to sit in the hard space. Sometimes you just have to live in the tension. In fact, I think that's the only way that you actually get stronger about anything. You don't grow or change or become who you want to be by sitting in one place. You become that person once you take a leap of faith and you're flying through the air and you have no idea if you have a parachute, how you're going to land, you don't know what you do. That is how you become who you were meant to be. So jump. Maybe you were given this mountain to show other people that it can be moved. The warriors who have walked through hard times, that is how the rest of us know that we can get somewhere. You can look at your past and see a line of mistakes, see only the hard things that life threw your way, or you can recognize all of the times that you overcame adversity, that you pushed through the hard stuff, that you got it done. And when you go through something strong and you become stronger in the process, when you remember the power of me too, and when you see a sister and she's carrying that that you carried for years now you are stronger and you can say to her girl I can help you carry that load because I know what it feels like to unpack that bag I will raise my hand and I will be the first person that tells you that it happened to me and not only did it happen to me but that I've walked through it and I'm on the other side start crying about what happened and take control of what happens next get up right now Rise up from where you've been, scrub away the tears and the pain of yesterday and start again. Girl, wash your face. So she references the title of her book there because she's a motivational speaker. Clearly, she's very charismatic, very energetic, young, cute, just motivational. And she wants to motivate us to think a certain way. So our second point is that we need to think about what her message is. We need to think about the author's message. Again, we're going to do the five W's and the H as we consider these things. So let's begin by looking at A, who, who is in charge? Uh, what does Rachel say about who's in charge? And then what does the Bible say about who's in charge? Well, um, according to Rachel, you and only you are ultimately responsible for who you become and how happy you are. That's the takeaway. Uh, she says, you are in control of your own life. You can become whomever and whatever you want to be, my sweet friend. The precious life you have been given is like a ship navigating its way across the ocean, and you're meant to be the captain of the vessel. If I wanted a better life than the one I'd been born into, it was up to me to create it. You are in charge of your life, sister, and there's not one thing in it that you're not allowing to be there. You've got to believe in yourself and believe that you're capable of making changes to become whatever kind of person you want to be. Only you have the power to change your life. So according to Rachel, you are in control of your life. Uh, it's all up to you. If there's anything in your life, it's because you have allowed it to be there. You are the one that's in control. Well, what does the Bible say about that? We know the scripture says, for example, in Psalm 103, 19, that the Lord, Yahweh, has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So he is in charge of all. 
Uh, the Bible says in Proverbs 19.21 that many are the plans in the mind of a man, in the mind of a person, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Ultimately, God's purposes will stand. And then in Isaiah 14.24, as the Lord, as Yahweh of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. So we see, we know the message of the scripture, the message of the Bible is that God is in control of our lives. God is in control of your life and not you. The second question we're gonna ask is, what should satisfy us? Uh, what is it that we're called to be satisfied by or to be content in or with? Um, according to Rachel, we're to stop accepting less than you deserve. Uh, this is your life. You are meant to be the hero of your own story. You should be the very first of your priorities. Ladies, you get one chance at this, literally only one chance at this life. And you have no idea when your chance might be over. You cannot waste it living only for everyone else. Uh, she was talking with her dad and records this in her second book. She says, I was talking with my dad the other day about the idea for this book, that Stop Apologizing. I told him that I wanted to write about pursuing and achieving goals. I told him how many women send me notes asking me how to find the courage to do that. He told me to tell you to be selfish. And then she goes on to explain how you've got to be selfish if you really want to achieve your goals. Uh, speaking about your spouse, her spouse, her husband's name is Dave. Uh, how many times has your partner taken the trash out or done the laundry or gotten up with a baby to make it easier on you? Being occasionally inconvenienced is a part of life. And if you're willing to do it for them, then you better be willing to demand that they do it for you. If you have something you cannot stop thinking about, that is the universe telling you what to do. And then she says, I think you should want more for your life. And these are direct quotes that I pulled from the RISE conference. So according to Rachel, you deserve more. You deserve more, and if necessary, you should even demand it. Well, what does the Bible say about that? Uh, we know that 1 Timothy 6, 5 through 8 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Also Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So clearly the Bible teaches us that we're to be content. We're not to demand more. We don't deserve more. God's called us as his daughters to be content. And the third question is, where should our focus be? What should be, we be focusing on? Who should we be focusing on? Well, according to Rachel, before you continue reading her book, take a few moments to focus on a specific dream. Get out a piece of paper and write it down. Maybe write down 10 dreams. Maybe start with little innocuous things and keep writing until the truth comes out. So we're to keep writing down our dreams until the truth comes out, until we really admit we want the big stuff. Some people quit, that is quit their dreams, because a voice of authority tells them to. Oh, who might that voice of authority be? Maybe a spouse 
or a partner, a best friend was afraid of what would happen to your relationship if you grew. And so they tried to keep you anchored to the ground. So if your husband is trying to quash your dreams, it's possibly because he's afraid of what might happen and wants to keep you anchored to the ground. And so you aren't supposed to listen to voices of authority telling you what to do. Unless, of course, the voice is Rachel's. Because she goes on, look at those dreams you wrote down on your paper at the start of this chapter. Now listen to me. You do not have permission to quit. I revoke that permission. I take away the power those people or circumstances put over your life and I give it back to you. It's all in your hands now. Everything that happens from here on out is entirely up to you. This is the hard part because I will tell you right now, nobody will ever care about your dream as much as you do, ever. You got to take those dreams. Do you want the big stuff for your life? I just mean you should keep your eyes on your goal regardless of what gets in your way. When you understand that you don't have to justify your dreams to anyone else for any reason, that's the day you truly begin to step into who you were meant to be. So you become who you were meant to be when you realize you don't have to justify your dreams to anyone for any reason. My dreams weren't just a part of me. They were the core of who I was. They were a gift from God. And if my creator endowed me with something, how could it be wrong? Isn't that what we're hearing in culture all the time? If God made me this way, if he gave me this desire or this dream, how could it possibly be wrong? If you can't commit the time in your schedule to becoming the person that you want to be, what are we even doing here? Why are we even trying? Is, is your schedule populated by things that will make your life better? Or is it dictated by everyone else's wants and needs? So according to Rachel, we're to focus on our dreams. We're in control. It's all about us. We are to focus on our dreams, not letting anybody get in our way. Well, what does the Bible say that as Christian women were to focus on? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, for example, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those witnesses of Hebrews chapter 11, the heroes of the faith, let us also, let's lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus Focusing on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And then we know what Jesus said. Uh, Jesus wrapped these things up so succinctly, so tersely in the next slide. <laughs> okay. Oops, that's going too fast here. Okay. Here we go. Jesus said, as we know, in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and prophets. So if we were to summarize everything that was right for our life, it would be to love God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind, and to love our neighbor, to love other people. So according to God, according to the Bible, we are to focus on not ourself and our dreams, but we are to focus on God and others. 
Well, what about uh, when other people are wrong? Uh, when those around us are wrong, when we see sin, we see error, we see things that are off in other people, when we see sin in ourselves, uh, when should we correct other people? Uh, according to Rachel, judging each other actually makes us feel safer in our own choices. And faith has to be one of the most abused instances of this. We decide that our religion is right, therefore every other religion must be wrong. Now, within the same religion, or heck, even within the same church, people judge each other for not being the right kind of Christian, Catholic, Mormon, or Jedi. And then she talks about uh, how it is right just to realize that we're not right. In fact, she says, I like to tell young married couples about the time I hated Dave. That's her husband. She hated him. I like to tell them because I want them to know how this feeling is totally normal. And they'll likely find themselves there now and again. So it's totally normal to hate your husband and don't be surprised. Don't judge yourself if you find yourself hating the man you're married to. Now, she was talking on a live stream and a commentator objected to what she said. Uh, she says, I said something like this recently on a live stream and a commenter said something like, um, no, guilt is important. Uh, feeling guilty is how we know we're doing something wrong. Guilt is God's way of telling us we're making bad choices. And she said, holy crap. No, seriously, that's a load of crap wrapped up in pretending to be holy. I don't care what religion you were raised in. You weren't taught guilt and shame by your creator. You were taught guilt and shame by people. That means whatever your people thought was shameful is what you learned to be ashamed of. Whatever your family or the influential people in your life thought was something to feel guilty about is what you have guilt about now. So as fallen creatures, we do not stand guilty before God. That's all learned. So Rachel says, don't judge others. In fact, you probably shouldn't even judge yourself, right? Uh, because there is no real guilt. We all hate our husbands. And, you know, who are we to say that another religion is wrong? Well, what does the Bible say about that? Jesus, in speaking of how to judge others, says, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck Take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. So telling them how to get the speck out of their brother's eye. Here's how you do it. You hypocrite, first get the log out of your own eye. And then, then you'll see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So he's saying deal with yourself first and then deal with others. That's what we got to do. Proverbs 9.8 says, don't reprove, don't correct, don't judge, don't uh, rebuke a scoffer or he's going to hate you. But if you reprove, if you correct, if you judge the behavior of a wise man and point out the way of his heirs, he's going to love you. Reprove a right, wise man and he will love you because he realizes that's how he grows and that's what we all need to do. We need to grow in holiness. Proverbs 9.8. And then Ephesians 4.15 uh, reminds us that we are all to speak the truth in love. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. We are all called to speak the truth. Uh, we need to be loving, we need to be kind and gracious and gentle, but we have got to tell the truth. So the Bible says that we are to lovingly correct others, and even ourselves, right? I know I'm pretty loving with myself when I correct myself, but we need to correct others' behavior. 
Well, what about our priorities and why should those be our priorities? I mean, why should we prioritize the things that we prioritize? We're all prioritizing something and why should we do that? Well, according to Rachel, as she was um, writing her first book, she became obsessed. She says, I barely saw my husband or my kids as I wrote like an insane person until my first draft was finished. So she worked on that book so much so that she barely saw her husband and her kids. And she says later, what he, referring to he there, is uh, her oldest son. What my oldest son noticed is that I'm not like the other moms because I work a lot. I very rarely get to drop him off at school or pick him up. And again, that's because driven by her dreams, she's chosen to work a lot. She said, my kids care that their friend's moms went on the museum field trip yesterday and I didn't because I was flying to Chicago for work. So her kids care that she wasn't able to be there or wasn't able to do the things that the other moms do because she's working really hard. But my children's attitudes will shift and grow over time. I believe that the very thing that makes me so different now, the company I run, is one of the things that will make me cool when they're older. So even though she's missing out on a significant portion of their life because she's working so hard to build her own personal empire, as we'll see in her own words later, it's gonna be okay. Because her kids are one day gonna say, she was cool. Years ago, I had to make a choice. Either I had to embrace being a working mom and be wholly proud of what I was doing, or I had to quit and commit to being a stay-at-home mom, which she did have the option to do. So constantly castigating myself for my choices, it just wasn't fair to my children. And it definitely wasn't fair to me. I also wasn't setting a great example for them. Did I really want them to see me spending my life pursuing a dream while also anxiously acting as though I didn't deserve that right? Absolutely not. So she didn't want them in any way to think that she had the attitude that I don't deserve this. She talks about mommy guilt a lot, a lot, uh, in both of the books. And I do think that it's something that troubles her. Uh, speaking of it in Girl Stop Apologizing, she says, mommy guilt, that's the guilt that you feel when you don't feel like you're really being the mother that you should. Mommy guilt, you guys, mommy guilt is bullcrap. And it says the word in the book, I edited that out for the sake of us. Mommy guilt is bullcrap. There, I said it. I don't know if my editor will even let me keep that in here. But if we're gonna hold on to one cuss word in this book, Jessica, that's her editor, let, that, let it be that line right there. No mommy guilt. I'm not gonna feel guilty that I'm not the kind of mom that anyone else wants me to be. My goal is simple, even if it's grandiose. I want women to understand that they have the power to change their lives. It's at the core of everything I do. It's the platform I've built everything else on. And I truly believe it's what I was put on this earth to do. I'm building a media empire around the idea. No, I did not mistype. Yes, I just said a media empire. Not a company, not a side hustle, not a small business, an empire. So according to Rachel, you do what you do. Your motive is that you come first. You come first and you got to do what you got to do because you got to pursue your dreams. You got to build. You got to go. And remember, number one best-selling Christian book. What does the Bible say about that? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not only to his own interests, 
but also to the interests of others. And then in Titus 2, 4, and 5, this is uh, instructions for older women, more spiritually mature women, to teach younger women, women with young kids. Uh, Rachel has four young kids in the house. Train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. It's not saying you can only work at home if you work outside of the home, but it is saying that our heart should be in our home and with our kids and with our husbands, and that should be the focus, the, the reason for what we're doing. So the Bible says, put others before yourself. We know that to be true. The message of the scriptures is that others come before ourselves. Well, how do we live in the world then? I mean, if it's all about us, if we're in control, if we're here to pursue our dreams, how do we live in this world? Well, according to Rachel, and it is interesting, going through her books, her first book alone, I noticed that 31 times she refers to wine. Uh, Four times she refers to vodka and four times she refers to cocktails. Um, interestingly, only five times the name of Jesus is brought up in the first book, and two times it's referring to, Lord Jesus, help me not to rip his arms off, and Lord Jesus, help me not to be disgusted with this woman. So there's only three other times that the name of Jesus is mentioned, but 31 times wine, four times vodka, and four times cocktails. Uh, She says in a chapter that says, you don't need alcohol. She says, it's funny or depressing to admit that before I had kids, I never really understood why anyone drank. Then suddenly I found myself exhausted, overwhelmed, and on edge. And I discovered that I could have a glass of wine that magically muted the edges. So she's talking about this, and again, uh, this is from a chapter that says you don't need to drink, and she's saying you don't need to, and yet drinking truly is a big part of what she writes about, uh, even talks to her kids about. In fact, I have a a video showing Why do you like alcohol? That's not true. That was my gut instinct to say that. Why do I like alcohol? How long do you have? It tastes good. It makes you feel good. Makes you calmer. A social activity to do with your friends. It's fun. Makes you happy. Makes you calmer. It also makes you, yeah, because it's a very real and important part of parenting. I like alcohol because it makes me calmer. Do you know what happens if you have too much alcohol? Yes. What? You get drunk. You. Or you have to go to the hospital and have it sucked out of you. Yep, that's right. If you have more than like two beers, you have to go to a hospital and have to suck the beer out of your body through through needles. <laughs> it hurts so bad, so don't and drink. And then like if you drink like a ton. How would you know that that's the thing that happens? Because daddy told me. Oh, okay. Daddy knows everything. If you drink too much and it just depends on like your... your the type of person you are? Sure. It would make you sick. Like, like you throw up. I've never thrown up because I've drank too much. Really? No, not really. I've definitely, I've definitely thrown up. There's like a time you're like bowling, let's say. You're recently 21. You want to impress, you know, the guy that you're with. And for me, it was your daddy. You drink one and then you feel so happy that you think this is the most fun. I need to have another drink. And that's when you throw up and it's purple. Why are there so many types? Of alcohol? Yes. <laughs> How do you even, because God loves us and wants us to be happy? In some countries, is it always going to be 21 or is it? No, that's a good question. Ages? Yeah, depending on where you go, um, the age changes. I think in Europe, anyone know? I think it's 18. If you went to Europe, it, like after you graduated high school, it would be like, hey, what do you want? What do you want to drink? 
A water! You wanna hear a true story? Okay. When you were little, you got into the pantry. Your aunt was watching you. This was not my fault. Which would? Noni. And you found a bottle of margarita mix. <laughs> this is real, you were a toddler. But to you, it appeared like lemonade. This was an alcohol already mixed in. And you had some of that margarita mix before Noni got to you. I'm just saying you've already, you've already been exposed. Drinking at age two. Yep. How old were you when you first drank? I was younger than I should have been, but that is your aunt Christina's fault. I had gone over to stay the night at her house and she was having something <laughs> called a Midori Sour, which is like a gateway, because it tastes like Kool-Aid. I was 15. I thought you were gonna say seven. So. No, what? What kind of monster do you think she is? <laughs> and then later on, maybe when I was in high school, one girl stole a Budweiser from her mom and like 10 of us took a sip of it and it was disgusting. I'll tell you right now, Budweiser tastes like dog urine that's but, been heated to a slow boil. Budweiser, so you will never get an ad out of my mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's accurate. We don't want your we don't want your ads here, Budweiser. Thank you. Nope. Okay. Uh, remember, this is the number one best-selling Christian book author. Uh, in addition to cussing or, or drinking, she cusses. Uh, she's writing a letter to herself in one book, and uh, she says. I'll tell you right now that the original letter that she wrote to herself included a lot of cussing because I honestly never planned on anyone reading it and sometimes a well-placed F-bomb can fire me up and I love Jesus but I cuss a little. For today's purposes, I've toned it way down and removed the words that might have this book banned in several countries. Uh, not only does she cuss, but she talks to her kids about cussing, too. Got one more video for you. What's a cuss word? A cuss word is a bad word that you should not say. There are a lot of them, and depending on the family you come from, some things would be a bad word. Like when I was little, I used to say, oh my gosh, and I got in so much trouble for oh my gosh, because it was almost saying, oh my God. Do you know any cuss words? Yeah. I don't want you to say them. Yeah. On, how many cuss words would you say that you know? Two. <laughs> what letter do they start with? S and F. You know the F word? Yes. Oh my probably knew those words at your age too. Like what makes curse words bad? I don't know why we decided that these specific words were the bad words. I just know that they've been the bad words for a really long time. Okay. Sometimes even when you don't want to say a, a bad word, something could happen like you could stub your toe or maybe I could step on a Lego. You hit your finger with a hammer, it comes out. How old do you have to be to say them? I mean, legally, you have to be an adult. So when you turn 18, you can buy a lottery ticket, buy cigarettes, which you never would, or I would kill you. But at 18, I can't do anything to stop you. I cuss sometimes, I do. Not around you, but sometimes. Like, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. How many, how many cuss words do you think there are in the English language? Um, I think there's probably 15. Really? If you were to stub your toe or to step on a Lego. Well, some of my friends say like, fart or flip. <laughs> I don't, oh that's great work, bud. That is great work, thank you. What's flip? Oh, like flip you off? Oh, like I don't give a flip? Or like this flipping day, I don't give a flip. Tell me, use flip in a sentence as the kids at school today do. What the flip was that? Yeah, that's like, that's like, it's a substitute word, which is why I got in trouble when I was a little girl and I said, oh my gosh, because my Mima was like, you may as well be bringing the Lord into this. You have it so much easier than I did. Don't cuss. Okay number one best-selling Christian author. 
advises her kids on cuss words. Uh, her goals, her dreams, the things that she thinks about, the things that motivate her. Uh, she says, I'm a big fan of displaying visuals inside of my closet door to remind me every single day of what my aim is. Currently taped to my door, the cover of Forbes featuring self-made female CEOs, a vacation house in Hawaii, and a picture of Beyonce. Obvi, for obviously. We all want to look like Beyonce, right? Uh, when she was young and she was with her mom after the divorce and they were living in uh, poor conditions, she said, I vowed to myself that day that I would be wealthy when I grew up. It was my birthday candle wish. I stood in that tiny dining room on stained carpet in front of the yard sale table, and I promised myself something better. I will never live like this when I have the ability to prevent it. I was vehement in this. Someday I would be rich. Cardio fantasies. Uh, she talks about how to get through your cardio workouts. It's hard, right? We're working out, we're doing cardio work. It takes a long time. How do you get through it? You have fantasies, that's what you need to do. Uh, she has fantasies about being best friends with her hero, and her hero, the author that she would want to meet more than anyone on earth is Deborah Harkness. Uh, Deborah Harkness is a brilliant historian, but she also is an expert in witchcraft and magic, and has written All Souls Trilogy, which is about witchcraft and magic. She has fantasies about vacationing with celebrities. Uh, when she says, I wasn't kidding about the George Clooney thing, earlier in the book, she says that she fantasizes about being on vacation with George Clooney. Uh, she has fantasies about singing on the stage with Lionel Richie. And she says she has fantasies about Ryan Gosling or a Hemsworth brother. Uh, she says, I'm far too much of a weenie to have any real fantasies about these guys, but I do like dreaming about some situation where I look flawless, and I'm so totally hilarious and witty that one of these stallions can't help but hit on me. That's her fantasy. Didn't Jesus say something about that in Matthew 5, 27 and 28? If you lust after someone, it's as if you've committed adultery with them. I mean, can you imagine if a man said this? Uh, we giggle about our female fantasies, but if your husband fantasized about another woman while he was working out, we'd have him down in Pastor Mike's office in 30 seconds flat. I, this is not okay. Uh, according to Rachel, drinking, cussing, pining after cash and celebrities, it's all cool. It's all cool. It's all okay. It's all fun, funny things to be laughed about. And what does the Bible say about that? God says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, the vision board, thinking about looking like Beyonce, didn't we just see that, the desires of the flesh? The Hawaiian vacation house, the desires of the eyes, and the cover of Forbes magazine one day wanting to be there with these female CEOs, the pride of life. I, what would Jesus' vision board look like? Uh, the people of Jerusalem that he lived for, the people of the world, the cross, the kingdom to come, so different than these things. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 5.18 that we're not to get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And not getting drunk means we probably shouldn't even be joking about getting drunk and vomiting purple because we drank too much. Ephesians 5.4 says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. We're not to be cussing and joking with cussing, let alone joking with our kids about cussing.
Romans 12, 2 tells us, you are not to be conformed to this world. We're not to be made into the shape of, molded into the shape of the world. But instead, we're to be transformed, we're to be different by the renewal of our mind, that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The Bible tells us, do not be like the world. Do not be like the world. God doesn't want us to be like the world. And there's so much more. Literally, I could go on and on and on, and much is on the cutting room floor. Things about premarital sex, and bottom line, basically everybody does it, to gender roles and how they're wrong and outdated, to the need for therapy. She says if she had enough money, she would buy therapy for every single woman on the planet. And the bottom line is, our third point is, we've got to admit that these are just not Christian books, right? I mean, again, Christian publisher, Christian bestseller list for over a year now, and these are not Christian books. They're just straight out self-help books from a very charismatic self-help dynamic guru, but they're not Christian books. Uh, she says, I surround myself with positivity. I cringe even writing that because it sounds like a poster you'd see taped to the wall of your eighth grade gym class. But cheesy or not, it's gospel. What's the gospel? What's the good news? Positivity. Surround yourself with positivity. She says that I used to naively say that everything happens for a reason. But that was only because I hadn't lived yet through something horrific enough to bring that statement into question. I don't believe everything happens for a specific reason. But I do believe it's possible to find purpose, even in the absence of explanation. Well, we know the historical Christian position is that everything does happen for a reason because God is sovereign. He's in control and he knows exactly what he's doing. Um, she talks about the platform that she has and the people or the flock that she ministers to. She says, I believe the Lord gave me this platform to be a good shepherd. So she's a good shepherd. She's the shepherd over these ladies to be a good shepherd to this diverse and beautiful flock. So her flock is the over 1.3 million Instagram followers, all the ladies that are buying these books. I believe I can't possibly love them well if I first demand that they be like me in order to receive it. In other words, as the good shepherd, shepherding over the flock, I can't expect people to follow me or to be like me or to believe what I believe. She says, I am a Christian, but I fully love and accept and want to hang out with you and be friends if you are Christian or Muslim or Jewish or Buddhist or Jedi or love the opposite sex or love the same sex or love Rick Springfield circa 1983. That's fine. I mean, we're all called to love these people, but if they're in our flock and we are their shepherd, this is all part of one long quote, if we're shepherding over this flock and this flock in no way, whether you're Christian or Muslim or Jewish or Buddhist or Jedi, or you're attracted to the same sex or opposite sex, if you're in no way stumbled or offended by her message, then it's not a Christian message. Because Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one could come to the Father but by him. And that's the message of the Bible. And we can't change that. She talks about her morning routine at one point. She says she gets up at five. Um, after she finishes her work, she does a meditation on gratitude, and then she writes in her journal. Uh, after that, she says that she has some coffee, and then she wakes up the hellions who live down the hall. That's her kids. Uh, after they're at school, she gets ready for work, always to upbeat music. Once she's ready for work, she has a green smoothie. And the last thing that she does is write down her list of 10 dreams and the one goal that's going to get her there the fastest. 
as a Christian author with a Christian publisher in a Christian book, when you're saying this is the best time of my day where I do the most important things, is there anything missing from that list? (laughs) Any Bible time or time talking to God, confessing your sins, things that we would consider to be normative if we're going to follow a Christian leader? We got to ask ourselves if we should be reading this stuff. I mean, should we be reading this stuff? Should our friends, should our family members, should those in our Christian communities, should they be reading this stuff? We already know what the answer is, right? We have here a picture of a, a doctor, a physician, uh, consulting a patient. And let's say that this doctor discovered that her patient had a treatable cancer. She's going to have to tell the patient that. She's going to have to say, you know what, there's something wrong with your body. And unless you get that out, you could die. But this is treatable. This is fixable. We can deal with that. And in a sense, as Christians, we all have a spiritual responsibility to point out spiritual cancer. And when we see something that's treatable, fixable, we can pull it out, we can get rid of it, and it will help us spiritually, we've got to do something about it. And if we love others, we've got to say something to other people too, um, with gentleness and respect and love and kindness, but we've got to say something if we really care about their souls. And we also have to realize that the self-help industry Uh, This is a 2008 stat as well. The self-help industry is an $11 billion a year industry. Uh, We live in a culture that is saturated with and just driven by self-help. Self-help books, self-help programs, self-help powders, self-help everything. Now listen to what the Bible says about this. The Bible says that, understand this, in the last days, and we are clearly living in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, right? Constantly wanting to improve self, lovers of self, lovers of money, wanting to get rich, proud, I'm going to be the champion, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Don't read their material don't subscribe to their blogs. For among those, them, are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. So these people who have the appearance of godliness but deny its power were to avoid them because they creep into households and they capture weak women. When we think about weak women, we can think about this little cartoon elderly woman here who's standing with a cane because she's so weak, she can barely stand. We think about the strong woman. We might think about the woman in the chair, the corporate woman. She's strong. She's powerful. She works out. She eats right. She gets her goals done. She does whatever it takes. But you know what? From God's perspective, if that old frail woman is rejecting these lies, if she's standing fast on the word of God, rejecting these uh, self-promoting truths, she's the strong woman. And that corporate woman who has it all down, if she's embracing this stuff, if she's living for herself and making everything about her, then she is what God would say is the weak woman. We want to be the one who God looks at and says, there is a strong woman because she rejects the lies that the culture is feeding at her. But don't forget that self-help industry wants you to keep tuning in. Because as you tune in, as you buy the books and the products and the powders, as you subscribe to the feeds, they get more money. 
They get more sponsorship. They get more advertising. They get more, you know, promotional things. They get more and more and more. You see, the self-help promotion, the self-help industry appeals to the fact that we as humans, we as fallen humans, we realize that we are all broken. We are. We are broken and we realize that. But self-help isn't the answer. Only Christ can fix us. Only Jesus can fix us. We want that hope of being able to be fixed so we'll cash out our money trying so hard to find another book or another program or another powder that will fix it for us. But we need the help and the hope that only Jesus can give. Jesus is the only one that can provide us with real hope. And if he has, if we are in Christ, we can't forget. We've got to keep on focusing our mind on the truth, the biblical truth, the real truth that this is not our home. This place is not our home. Paul says this in Philippians 3, 18 through 20, addressing the church at Philippi. He says, many, many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. He was weeping about this. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their belly meaning their wants, their appetites, their desires, even their dreams. And they glory in their shame. The things that they should be ashamed about, they're glorifying and boasting about and laughing about them with mindset on earthly things. But for us, for us who are in Christ, who are followers of Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not our home. And we're not gonna get caught up in these things because we belong to somewhere else far greater than anything we could ever even think or imagine. If we had just this picture of a mansion here, this beautiful mansion, knowing that this token mansion is nothing compared to what Christ is preparing for those who are in him. And some were to say, you're going to go live in this mansion, but for a while, you need to live in the tents over here on the side. You got to live in the tents for a while because there's a mansion that's being prepared for you. But for a season, you got to live in those tents. Are we going to get all wrapped up in the tents? Are we going to worry about whose tent is better than whose? Whose tent is bigger than whose? Whose colored tent do we like better? How many coolers do we have in our tent? What kind of sleeping bag do we have? What does it look like? Who are we tenting near? No. We're going to get out of those tents. We're going to do whatever we can to get as many people as possible to the place that we're going, where we are all going to stand in the presence of God eternally, living in a place that will wildly exceed anything that we could even dream of. What are we doing? What are we doing when we're focusing on the tents and this life down here in a way that no Christian has ever been called to? That's why Peter said in 1 Peter 2.11, I urge you, I'm begging you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Focusing on these things, reading about these things, learning about these things, becoming saturating with these things, these self-help things, they wage war against our soul and we need to abstain from them. In our final slide, our final verse, Jesus said to his disciples, in a verse that we're going to be studying all summer, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and forfeits his soul. Let's pray. 
God, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together as Christian sisters uh, at this wonderful church, this church that we love so much at Compass Bible Church, and to think about these uh, books, about these messages, about these teachings. God, we know that uh, you tell us in your word that we are to examine things with the scripture to see if they're true. God, you ask us to think through, to not believe everything, but to test the spirits, to test the messages, to test what we're getting and see if it lines up with your word. God, um, I pray that you would help us, Lord, that you would provide conversations for us, that our first conversation might be with ourselves. I mean, if we're reading these kind of things or even lulled in by these kind of things, that we would put it away that we would turn from it, that we would stop uh, polluting ourselves with this kind of thinking. And God, if we have friends and family members that we run into or converse with over the summer who are proponents of these things and being sucked into these ways of thinking, I pray, God, that you would provide opportunities for us to have conversations with them, that we would be kind and loving and gracious, but that we would be able to speak the truth. And we pray, God, that even now in advance, you would be preparing their hearts and that they would hear and receive and see the difference between uh, Rachel's message and the message of the historical Christian position, the message of the scripture. And God, we do pray for Rachel. God, I pray that you would be with her right now wherever she is. Pray, God, that you would send your Holy Spirit, as John 15 says, to convict her concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I pray, God, that you would change her from the inside out, Lord, and that one day she would write books that focus on you and your kingdom and the kingdom to come. God, I pray that you would do a great work in her life, Lord God. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as your children you would help us never to forget that this is not our home. God, please, as we walk through our lives daily and we're constantly reminded of the things that are around us, God, help us to see the way that Jesus saw. Help us to remember, Lord God, that we are just passing through this place as an exile, as a sojourner. Help us to get in the business that you've called us to do. Help us to work with excellence because we're working unto Christ and help us to make a difference, ultimately a difference so that as many as possible would be saved, would be reconciled to you, Lord God, and would be able to spend eternity in your presence. God, we thank you so much for your word, for the message, the truth that it contains. But God, ultimately, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Your son, Jesus Christ, who has provided us with the real help and the real hope that we need, the eternal hope that we have in him. We thank you for his blood. We thank you for his life. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You guys are dismissed to your groups.